Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 198, we're starting into the first of Brandon Sanderson's much-anticipated secret projects, Tress of the Emerald Sea. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me is Cosmere expert and 17 shard luminary Argent. Hello. Hi. Hello, everyone. I, in other podcasts, the host does a countdown, and in this one, Drew didn't, and I was very thrown <laughs> off by that. Uh, <laughs> but you you may know me from 17th Shard fame and Shardcast fame and Coppermine fame and uh, occasionally early reader fame and much more in fame. Is there in fame? How, sure. When sure. someone it, is infamous, infamous. Yeah. do yeah. they have in fame? Anyway, so <laughs> I, I have that as well. Very nice. Yeah, well, glad to have you on the show. And of course, uh, my wife and fellow Sanderson beta reader, Lauren. Cheers, guys. <laughs> yeah, so before we head into the episode itself, just a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and more. But today, for Tress... We are covering parts one through four through the end of chapter 34. This is a Cosmere story narrated by none other than Hoyd himself. It follows the tale of Tress, a young girl who lives on a rocky island in a very strange sea of ether spores, whose first love, Charlie, is taken captive by the evil sorceress who lives in the far midnight sea. She contrives to escape her island and joins the pirate ship captained by the intimidating woman named Crow and meets the various colorful crew members all the while hoping to find a way to save Charlie. Along the way, she partners with a talking rat named Huck, encounters a very silly version of Hoyd, who has been cursed by the sorceress, and the alien doctor, Ulam. Together with Anne, Saleh, and Fort, they hatch a plan to convince Crow to sail from the relatively safe Verdant Sea, or Emerald Sea, and into the much more dangerous Crimson Sea, hoping that Crow's terminal magical illness will be enough of motivation to manipulate her. At the end of part four, however, Tress realizes she's been playing herself all along. The deal she was hoping to guide Crow into making will almost certainly involve selling Tress herself into slavery under a dragon. Dragon hype! Let's go! Here we go! First first canon dragon? For, um, well, after cultivation, right? Yeah, oh, that's true, that's true. But we didn't see yeah. no, the dragon form. Yeah. But we haven't we haven't seen this dragon yet either. Yeah, but I, I'm hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert! Right off the top. Yeah, let's. We are not let's, generally let's spoilers. What are we? <laughs> what, what are uh, we covering here? Uh, so we are we are going to be covering spoilers for chapters one through thirty four of Tress of the Emerald Sea. Uh, we will try to keep Cosmere spoilers for. The end of this, I'll I'll give a like kind of highlight the Cosmere discussion when we get there. It might be more difficult in this book than it normally is, just because of what this book is. Uh, the fact that the narrator of this book is a Cosmere aware character. This book is, um, you know, the first book to come out after Brandon Sanderson's recent announcement that the gloves are off when it comes to crossovers uh, among the worlds of the Cosmere. It, this is 
not as like insane intense as you know the lost metal was where that's the final book of a of a four book series you know they're obviously this is just a standalone but brandon is giving himself liberties here with the cosmere stuff so we're gonna try to like not go full-blown cosmere discussion until the end of the episode for that segment but there may be things that are unavoidable (laughs) it's only going to get more difficult from now on yeah yeah I mean, there have already been conversations that I've been having with people about, um, you know, Cosmere reading order and things like that. And I'm like, these secret projects made me give up. (laughs) I'm like, it's impossible to, to, to like finesse a reading order at this point to try to keep series together as much as possible and set up ideal. I'm just like, Look at it in phases or read in publication order. <laughs> join me Join me in our Lord and Savior publication order where no one has to ever think about anything and you just yeah. get to relive the experience as as we contemporaries did. Yep. Yeah, and, and it is funny like how, how much work I put into my own Cosmere reading order over the years when I was a person who, with the exception of Elantris, which I read second after The Final Empire... I read everything in publication order. <laughs> yeah, mine was mine was similar. I think I did. No, I, I think no, 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 no. I'm lying to you. I think I did strict publication order, and I'm just not sure where Warbreaker fell. I did Elantris. Oh, okay. I did Mistborn Era One, and and then I think I did Warbreaker, and then Way of Kings. And oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. It is funny how how much of that conversation online has been dominated by people who generally read in publication order and are trying to like <laughs> retroactively change the order. <laughs> uh, we're all bad. I mean, it is relevant. I it it is, but it's also getting a lot harder. <laughs> it's getting hard. So I have one coworker who's fully read everything, and then our other coworker only did Stormlight Archive, and so it was really difficult for us to talk to him. <laughs> And be like, as he was finishing, because he doesn't know so much of like the background. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't want to spoil anything. But it's also like, <clears throat> you should really read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really should. Really, really should. But for Tress, uh, like, I think this is a good segue into the style discussion here because the Cosmere crossovers are immediately relevant in the story. But at the same time, it you don't really need to know about them. Like I, I know uh, I've talked to you know to Josh Joffwu. Um, he's of the same opinion on this book as I am that this could actually be an intro book to the Cosmere for somebody. Yep. Sure, and, and I agree. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, even though there's a lot going on in the background, there are a lot of references and things. So much of the in-world language feels the same. Like, I think this is a distinctive uh, stylistic choice that Brandon made here, where in previous books, he often went out of his way to make these crossovers and Easter eggs stand out just a little bit. And here he's blending it all in seamlessly. And, and that casual universality to the Cosmere is going to be something we see more going forward, where the people in the world are either wholly ignorant of how much this thing stands out or they're used to 
weird things popping up. And so we're going to start seeing that like uh, intertextuality of all these different series melding together and becoming just a, a standard veneer for Cosmere books going forward. Yeah. And so as, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, oh, which, because one of the things I like to do on, on in conversations and in podcasts is just spit out examples because I think yeah. um, it, it makes talking about things much easier. And the one that I, that I kept coming back to uh, in, in these four parts that we're going to be talking about was Fort and his magical mm-hmm. device that mm-hmm. can somehow display words, which we, as, as citizens of the 21st century, understand to be some kind of a tablet, right? Yeah. And Hoyd tells us that this is Nalthian tech with awakened like connection circuits, is I think yeah. what he yeah. says. Predictive connection circuits. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is fancy way of, of saying swipe keyboard, right? It's not a swipe keyboard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what's happening, right? But like in world, like tr- when Tress encounters this and Ford talks about this, they, how do they want to approach this? What, what I think is really interesting is that even though this is one technology, yes, there is magic in it, but this is definitely like advanced technology. The way it is treated in world enhances the feeling of the fantasy magical nature of the story, right? They are talking about, oh, I traded this with a wizard from across the stars, right? Uh, They treat it as as magic. They they, they treat it like a magical artifact. They don't treat it like a piece of technology. Mm -hmm. And so even though we are looking at a, a very concrete Cosmere crossover where something from another world made its way here or multiple somethings depending on like how advanced the thing is we are treating it as you know we are in a sword in in magic fantasy and we've stumbled upon a magic this is a plot device yeah 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 well the other interesting thing is they don't automatically say what another planet that's ridiculous yeah yeah you're you're lying you know they just kind of accept it and it seems to be that's different here than it has been on other planets where they're like, what? They're full of it. And and part of it, I think, is because this is Hoyd narrating it. The, our, our narrator is a world hopper. Our narrator knows. He makes comments in chapter one where he's like, yeah, this is a really weird ocean. But, you know, you might think it's a weird ocean because where you're from. But how many other planets have you been to? Maybe you're the weird one. Like, he makes these offhand comments that normalize interstellar travel (laughs) like okay i have a different theory though that it's not just because he's the narrator i kind of think that it's maybe situational to the planet they have 12 moons with creatures living on those moons this concept of other life that they can't get to may be more familiar to them than most planets if you want to call the ethers creatures well the they They're don't alive? know much about them either way. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Right, right. Hmm. But they know that like things come from there. There, therefore are, you there can are other infer... planetary bodies that are dynamic. Yes. Not there, are, where... there are things on those bodies. Yeah, yes. like for us on Earth, if we're just, you know, gravity bound looking up at the moon, there's nothing to tell us 
that it's anything other than a desolate wasteland, you know, or shooting stars or the sun or yeah. 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 Um, Oh boy. And the, (laughs) the moons, I, (laughs) are we even going to get into the, the physics of these moons? Like, (laughs) Uh, I, I think that for everyone's sanity, we should probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm not smart enough to like fully grasp the math of what's going on. I know some of the other beta readers were and were waging spirited arguments <laughs> really? about the impossibility of what's going on here. I mean, so so at at, at the moment of this recording, uh, and and also by defini- by extension, the moment you're listening to it, the White Sand Omnibus Digital Edition is available for purchase. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh! I uh, forgot that that went out yesterday. What? So you can you can buy that now. If you wow. pre-ordered it at this very moment, you don't have access to it. But if you didn't pre-order it, you can go and buy it, and and you can see <laughs> another example of Brandon approaching a story with the with like I have I have this visual in my head. It's just yeah. going to be this planet, and it's going to be locked between two stars, and one side is going to be day all of the time and the other side is going to be night all of the time and the moon is kind is going to be like circling the border of 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 where night meets day and it is very obvious that he has done no thinking about the physics of how this is going to work yeah. beyond i have this cool visual right and and there's there's a page in there from like what well, the the Ars Arcanum in that uh, yeah in the omnibus omnibus takes place. There is Shardic influence. <laughs> well, yes, that, that's that's one thing, right? And and I think a wizard that, did it. That's that that's gonna be Brandon's explanation for like all of yeah. these things, right? I want I want to have rule of cool, right? I want to have yeah. cool things in the Cosmere, and if it means that they were uh, like literal acts of God. <laughs> I will do that because I want cool things in the Cosmere. And so Tress, Tress of the Emerald Sea is another example, right? Brandon is like, sure. I want a planet and I want 12 moons just barfing waterfalls of spores onto the planet in like a D12 configuration. Yeah. And if Oh, it did means... we settle that it is a D12 configuration? It's not a ring? <sighs> I think... Because we... I know that was another argument. Oh, <laughs> uh... no. Oh, now now you've got me wondering. Did we say? <laughs> oh no! Because that was my initial read, but I don't remember like what the final. Well, okay, so you can sail. I don't either. Hold on, you can sail around the planet to get to the back of the Midnight Sea to get to the Sorceress. So they've got to be. If you can sail around the planet, I would assume that makes it feel like slices of an orange. No, 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 no. I think no, that you no, have I, I to think... go through the Crimson Sea. But so, then she talks about mountain ranges. Yes, which... on one side, but you can sail around the whole planet to get to yeah, the other. Yeah. So maybe so that actually doesn't help us at all because Dang then it, it could be either. No, no, no. I think <laughs> so. I think it has to be D twelve because otherwise you're not going to end up with like these oceans that we have. Because if you just if you just put the twelve moons around the equator, then you are going to have like. Yeah, you you're gonna end up with something similar to to orange slices. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to go back at some point and and look at. Yeah, some of those conversations. Um, yeah, I know. I I think the D12 makes the most sense, but none of it really makes sense. So yeah. I can't like. Yeah. yeah. I, either way, either way, there is like a shard went there, and it was like, I like this idea, and I'm gonna glue these moons in this astrophysically or, impossible situation. Or the ethers that say they predated the shards and are on the same level as the shards went there and did it. <laughs> yeah, some some divine <laughs> being, right? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, like so this book, I I think this is such an emblematic conversation of how weird this book is, where we start off by saying, this could be an entry point to the Cosmere. And at the same time, this is like the absolute depths of Cosmere nerddom. Like, but you don't have to you know, <laughs> engage on that level. You can right. choose. Exactly. You can engage with the story as this is a fairy tale being told to us by this knowledgeable character who's been put in a goofy position in the actual story. And it's a ton of fun. Like, I this is kind of my big, my second big style point is how as the years have gone on and I've read more Brandon and I've met, read Brandon more critically both through Inking Out Loud and as a beta reader and a gamer reader, there have been things that I don't love about Brandon Sanderson's writing. Uh, and what this book is leans into two of those things. One, not a huge fan of his humor. That's very well documented on the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm making a surprised face, but I'm not actually surprised. Yeah, yeah. Slightly less well documented, but I have brought it up before, is that um, the way Brandon approaches metaphor, uh, specifically simile, in his descriptive narration, I don't think often lands well. I, I think it it ends up feeling redundant. I don't like the way he'll separate a simile in into a second sentence. He'll say, like, there was one point I, I vividly recall from just reading uh, where Tress goes up onto the deck to convince Crow to sail into the Crimson Sea. And Crow's standing at the, you know, it's, it's a beautiful image. She's standing at the rail on the ship, drinking her, her tin cup of water and staring off at the setting sun. And, and we have that description of her standing at the railing, drinking her cup of water, staring off at the setting sun, period. And then it goes on, like an executioner who is uh, ensuring the death of the day or something like that. And that feels redundant to me. I'm like, you, for, for me as a writer and, and the way I like metaphor, the way I like simile imagery used in prose is... Uh, uh, like what Brandon's doing here is, is he tells you what the scene is and then he adds a flourish to it, describing the scene again. So he's doubly describing the scene. What I would like is if you're going to use that metaphor, just use the metaphor. Don't describe the scene before that. Say she was an executioner standing at the rail, watching the dying of the day. You don't need to say she was watching the sunset like an executioner, you know, and and so 
because he's leaning into this um, uh, fairy tale esque voice, which is nice. It's different. Uh, this is one of the things that really impressed me, and one of the reasons why. Spoiler alert: This is my favorite of the four secret projects. He's doing something really different, but it also gives him an outlet to do one of the things I dislike the most about his writing. But at the same time, the other thing I dislike the most is his humor. And yet I find myself laughing reading this book. He's actually <laughs> doing humor well here. I I like it too. Like I Anne is friggin' hilarious. Everything about her, every time she tries to do something, she's got like like a bazillion guns stuck into her belts. And every time she tries to go off and do something, people are like, give me the gun. You know, like it's <laughs> so one. funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. So this is such a double sided coin, right? Like this is, it's, it's a, it's a coin flip of which literary element that Brandon Sanderson is using here. Am I going to love or hate? And, but it makes the reading experience really fun for me. I have to wonder because so his humor is is also hit or miss for me usually although mm -hmm. i land far more on the hit side um but i wonder if uh, because the the simile thing is like this is what i like in a book like this is how i like a lot of similes working like i want to get i want to get the straight read of here's what's happening because my brain likes visualizing things with like concrete details and then give me kind of the literary flourish mm, at the end okay. or not necessarily at the end, but like somewhere in there. Right. And so yeah. I like all of that, but I wonder if, um, and so uh, this could obviously be just Brandon getting better with experience. Right. Although getting better from one book to the next is, is a challenging thing. Right. But it could also be, and I wonder if that's the case, an artifact of the framing, right? Because this is Hoyd narrating this entire story in this fairy tale-esque kind of way, it primes your brain. Like, and, and because he is using all of these, he's using a lot more humor in this book and he's using a lot more flourish in various different ways. Because he's kind of like not necessarily overloading your brain with those, but because you're getting a lot more of these things in a framing where they are more appropriate, right? Yeah. Then maybe that's that's why it's working better here. Yeah, it, I think that that's exactly what it is. It and it is. Um... So this is one of the things where a major criticism leveled at Brandon Sanderson by non-fans of Brandon Sanderson, and even some fans of him, is that he doesn't write good prose. You know, people are like, oh, he's mediocre at best. They're like, oh, he's got bad prose. It's, it's clunky, blah, blah. And then, and then fans come back and they're like, oh, well, he's doing it deliberately. It's the clear window pane metaphor, you know, versus stained glass window. And, and you get this whole argument going on. And throughout all of this, Brandon has maintained that he is capable of writing more of that stained glass window kind of prose. Uh, I I remember a few years ago we were out. Um, I was for the Starsight release, uh, and we got dinner with Brandon, and we were talking to him about Gene Wolfe, and uh, and Brandon brought up the fact that he hopes someday after he's done with the Cosmere, after he has you know most of the 
professional weight off his shoulders. He hopes someday to write a book more like Gene Wolfe in, in a more um, involved, flowery prose style to prove to people that he's capable of doing this. And I see this book as a stepping stone to that, where this was something he didn't intend to ever release. It was something he wrote for himself and for his wife in secret, and it allowed him to do something different. And, and we see that. I think this is a more flowery prose style than we're used to in, uh, in his other books. I'm never going to accuse this book of being like Gene Wolfe, uh, but I do see the, the, that kind of logical progression there from Brandon's perspective where he's saying, I am capable of more than you're used to seeing in my books. And this is an example of that. Yeah, I never saw him as incapable. I, I think he's clearly making the choice of being more accessible. Yeah, I, I think there may be a little bit of, he may not be as capable as I mean, he thinks he is of writing a book like Gene Wolfe. But Gene Wolfe is... But Gene Wolfe is... Nobody can write like Gene Wolfe. There's, the, there's a reason that... At the very know, least, but, it's something that he would like need to work harder. Yeah, and, and this is him practicing that. This is him breaking should. himself of some of his habits. And I think there are very much habits to Brandon Sanderson's writing style. That's part of the reason he's able to write so quickly, is that he has found a formula that works for him, and he writes in that formula. And this is breaking out of it a little bit. Yeah. What do you think of the first person perspective instead of our usual like omniscient third? Uh, limited third. Limited third. Sorry. Yeah, definitely limited not third. omniscient. Limited third. Um, I, I like it. I, so it's Hoyd and he, and he moves from not just a, like there's something a little more like an omniscient third in this because Tress is the quote unquote point of view but he shifts into first person where he'll yeah. he'll like get to a scene and say, I walked by her and said this, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so there's, there's kind of a, um, in a, in a different structure, but it reminds me a little bit of what Scott Lynch does in the gentleman bastards where he moves pretty seamlessly between an omniscient third person narrator and a limited where he'll like zoom in and out. And that's what it feels like. It, with this, where it's Hoyd zooming in and out, where mostly he's zoomed out talking about Tress and the circumstances around her. And occasionally he zooms in and says, I was here. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is what I'm experiencing. And, and it's, it, he does, I feel like he does that either when we are focused on like, like either Hoyd is showing up on the scene or whatever, or when Hoyd is turning to the audience and talking about yeah. here, Oh, this planet has weird oceans, probably unlike the ones that you are familiar with and things like that. Oh yeah. And so that's, that's another one of my style points I wanted to bring up is how he breaks the fourth wall in this book. But, but he's making, when he breaks the fourth wall, he, he breaks the fourth wall intra book and extra book um, where Hoyt is telling the story to somebody in the Cosmere. And so he's breaking the fourth wall of the story to address his audience there. And, and we have things of who that is. And we have Brandon Sanderson breaking the fourth wall and talking to his audience on earth who are reading the physical artifact titled Tress of the Emerald Sea. Like it's, it's really fun. I, like there was one point early in the book where, or, or maybe not so early, uh, she's talking about scrubbing the decks. 
and how this gives her time to formulate plans and to think. And we get Hoyd talking about how um, menial labor is not for the slow-witted. It's for the people who want to think while they work. And he goes on to say, you know, if you want to be really creative and productive, go find yourself a, a menial job. And but if you if you're an accountant or whatever, the only thing you're going to like have at the end of the day is like a burnt out candle or whatever. And that is absolutely Brandon Sanderson breaking the fourth wall, because that's what he did. He got a job as like a night shift front desk hotel staff, and he would write books while he sat there doing nothing. Like, it, so it, there, there are a lot of really fun layers to the story and to the way he stitched it together narratively that allow him to like really address things on different levels. Like I, I like that. And in that way, this is a Wolfian story. That's one of the things I love about Gene Wolfe is how things will happen and they mean things mean different things on different levels. I discovered that when I was 16 like my first job, they had me just start cleaning an area. Yeah. And I kept I kept going for like four hours. And my boss came back to me and was like, you really like doing that. And I was like, oh, I zoned out. Like I was, <laughs> I was, I was thinking about all the different things instead of like. <laughs> it's, a, I, it's a thing. I have, it, it, it is. And my experience with this, it, it comes from the other direction, right? Because the other half of that, that is not addressed in the book is that, or I, I guess it is with the accountant or whatever comment, is that if you're doing something where your brain is engaged, then yeah, then you can't you can't do anything else. And ironically, the example that Brandon himself has given in like streams and, and signings and stuff like that is why uh, programming doesn't work for him. Mm-hmm. He says that he felt like he tried it and he found that after a day of like doing computer stuff and, and thinking about programming, he found that this exercise is kind of the same part of the brain as writing does for him. And so at the end of the day, like uh-huh. his writing brain is tired and he can't write anymore. Yeah. And, and I can vouch for that, not with writing, but I know that after, cause I'm a software developer by day, after a day of, of writing code at the end of the day, my, like creative juices are just gone. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It, it makes sense. And and for myself, uh, for most of this year, I was working doing pretty like basic level, you know, backend CMS stuff, like some HTML and, and like, which to me is pretty mindless because it's not like involved. It's, it's like literally copy pasting, you know, code. And, and file management. And, and that allowed me over the past year to be really creative and write a lot. And then I got a new job. And my new job, I am heading up a writing department. I am writing a lot. And, and it's not just like boring, you know, sales copy or whatever. A lot of it is narrative driven where I'm taking information and building story around it. And I have found in the month of December... Like I was just telling you, Evgeny, like I was planning on working on a novel that I have, you know, that I started a little while ago. I was finishing, planning on finishing part one this month. We are two thirds of the month in and I haven't written a word of this book because I get off of work and I'm like, like, I just, I don't have that. The the creative battery's drained. 
you know, and, and I need to like either change something about my process or find a way to expand that battery to give myself the ability to keep writing because I'm really excited about this book. It's the one I started from NaNoWriMo and like, I, I love the idea, but like, I just, I haven't been able to make myself sit down and put words on a page because I've written for work in the last two months, like 300,000 words. And that's ludicrous. Like <laughs> lunacy, one might say. Yeah. And, and like, and it's, yeah, it's something I haven't had to grapple with before. So reading this, they've really like popped out to me. I'm like, yeah, Hoyd, you're right. You're right, buddy. <laughs> like <laughs> He has a bunch of points like that where he just like pops in and he's like, she decided to think about it. This is something our characters don't normally do. You yeah, should yeah. really consider thinking about things before you leap. He's like, that's the most heroic attribute I've ever seen. <laughs> I am going to think about this and not jump to conclusions immediately. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the so other great. kind of, I mean, I, I say the other, but there are so many other, right? Cool stylistic things where, yes, Hoyt is addressing the audience. And yes, I, I disagree that Brandon is breaking the fourth wall, by the way. I think he's just using Hoyt mm -hmm. as an excuse to like send messages that he himself shares with Hoyt. Sure. Um, is that functionally different? I think it is. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but, but the other, the other cool thing is that I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Inking Out Loud, everybody. <laughs> uh, happen. we um, were talking about just cool stylistic things that, that this story has allowed him to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, uh, like, and Hoyd and addressing the audience. Oh, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Um. The other, the other cool things that this book allows Brandon to do and, and do through Hoyt, right, is to comment on tropes and stereotypes yes. and things like oh. that in storytelling, right? Um, like Dougs? Well, the Dougs are, I think the Dougs are Hilarious. a unique thing. Um, <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm thinking specifically here is... Um, exactly the thing that we talked just a moment ago, right? There is a unfortunately popular trope in media where um, maybe it's lazy writing, maybe it's convenient writing, but characters don't often or don't always appear to act consistently with who they are and with the information that they have. They will uh, jump to conclusions or act... Uh, brashly in situations where doing so advances the plot in the easiest way possible, right? Yeah. yeah. You, a character in media, and you've, you've read this a bunch, you've seen this a bunch in TV and movies, something happens and the character goes, this is why this thing happened. I know exactly the reason and therefore I will go and kill my best friend because obviously he must have slept with my wife. Yeah. yeah, And there's no, like, thought beyond that. There's no conversation involved. It's just... And so that's why... That's one of the main reasons I like Tress, both the book and the character, so much is because on multiple points throughout the story, she stops and goes, is that... Let me, let me actually think about that and not jump to conclusion. And that's great. 
Yeah. And, and let me counsel with my parents before I go do this very brash thing that could get us all killed. So this may be like a, a, a shift into our character discussion, but this is one of the reasons that I love this book. Again, like you said, but especially in comparison to other Brandon books and other Brandon female protagonists. Uh, th- this is a, a phenomenon. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of Brandon for this, that a lot of his female protagonists feel the same. They're all witty. They're all scholarly. You you have characters like Shalon and Yasna and Chris who are all like nerds, right? Uh, you, you have a tendency in his female characters to uh, towards something I think is honestly admirable. Um, and that's to avoid the um, badass female character, you know, where we saw a shift in the mid 2000s into early 2010s, where a lot of authors were kind of, you know, fighting the man where they're like, you know, women can be badasses too. And then it became a bunch of just cardboard cutout. And, and all they, these they girls were all are badass in the same way. Yeah, they yeah. they were all the exact same character, and then to an extent falls into that. But I think Brandon saw that, and and with Vin it was more of a deliberate choice because that wasn't the first of his female characters. We know he wrote White Sand before that. We know he wrote Elantris before that. Um, I can't remember was Ether of Night. No, Ether of Night was definitely before Mistborn. Yeah. Um, uh, but like, so we know just from the, the chronology of his writings, he was writing varied, strong, actually dynamic female characters, but I think he ended up leaning too far in one direction. And, and what Tress is, is almost like a, like a refraction of that Brandon Sanderson female protagonist trope. Where even though Shalon is a smart, nerdy, witty person, she is extremely prone to that trope you're talking about, where she makes decisions rashly. And Tress may not be the nerd that uh, Chris or Shalon or, you know, or, or Steris is, but she is a more intellectual character because she takes that time she reminds me in a lot of ways of Perrin from the Wheel of Time yeah yeah she's very I mean the, the book calls her pragmatic right but she is very deliberate in in the way that she thinks yeah. and the way that she acts and I like that like Tress is super f- just like I would be friends with Tress 100%. I don't say that about many protagonists in books I would be friends with Tress I'd be friends with everybody but you already yeah <laughs> Lauren is friends with everybody. I'm. I. This is like a blanket statement. If you're a listener of Inking Out Loud and you ever run into Lauren and me, guarantee you, Lauren's going to be your best friend by the end of the day. Everybody is my friend unless they decide not to. <laughs> yeah. So, but but with Tress, it's like this is a really refreshing new kind of uh, avenue for Brandon to explore complicated main characters. She still has her flaws. She's still, you know, an interesting person to read about who's not just a a full-blown Mary Sue or anything. But she's intelligent in a different way. Yeah. She's not knowledgeable. In fact, that's a major part of her her arc here is that she doesn't know. She's... 
she's more philosophical in a way what i was giving you an opportunity to make a pun but uh <laughs> she is a you know she's been taken out of her comfort zone and put into a new you know circumstance that she doesn't have the knowledge to handle but she has the like cerebral attitude to figure out how to handle it you are totally setting me up for this beer i'm drinking right now i was trying to <laughs> <laughs> I'm not anyway. <laughs> to, to to push back just a little bit against that. I don't mm-hmm. disagree with with any of that, but I think there's more to it. It's not just like wisdom and and highbrow thinking and things like that. It is also No. I don't think it's highbrow at all. Well, I think it's yeah. It it is also like her She's a good person and and she likes to see the good in others and we well, we are just going into character aren't we um yeah we are <laughs> uh, I I have a thing that I I will maybe steer back later yeah yeah, uh, yeah we can do that but <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of why she is successful in in what she does is not only because she considers the situations carefully and, and examines them and makes the best choice that she can, but also because she gathers allies very quickly and very easily, right? And it oh, doesn't yeah. always work, right? Uh, Fort and Anne and Sally become friends with her very, very quickly. She kind of tries it on Crow and it just immediately doesn't work, right? She kind of mm-hmm. tries, tries it on Laggard, and it also doesn't work. So no. yeah. it's not a foolproof way, which, yes, it's not. Like, you can't always win people over by being good to them and, and friends with them, at least not in the and, short term. And with Saleh, it is built on a lie. You say Saleh? Saleh, yeah. Saleh? Oh, well, whatever the stress is on the name. It, it's built on a lie. She thinks she's a king's mask who is there to save them. Oh yeah, but but yes, to your point, Evgeny, you're you're totally right, uh, and and I think um, it's one of the reasons I'm I'm such a lucky man to be married to this woman sitting next to me. Uh, when she makes the choice to stay on the ship, when Crow tells her, "Yeah, go run off into Shimmer Bay," um, and she's arguing with Huck about it. And he's like, you don't know these people. You just met them. You don't owe them anything. And she's like, I didn't owe you anything, and I saved you. And he's like, well, yeah, fair enough. Like, that's how Lauren is. That's why she becomes everybody's best friend right away. Like, Lauren is one of the most selfless people I've ever met. True. Uh, But, like, Tress is is exactly that. Like she finds it easy to make friends and allies because she thinks of their own concerns before she thinks of hers. And then retroactively she figures out how can I, you know, use the resources that I have gained to further what I want after I've helped these other people first. No, obviously like she wouldn't frame it that way. Right. She, she would no, she, but no. of course not yeah. because she's, because she's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do want to, I do want to steer us back to to style just a little bit, and then I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll rapidly return to characters after that. 
Oh, I'm very curious here. Um, I did want to talk about just and and so those of you who have read multiple Brandon books know that the world building of each book is just slightly lightly colored and nuanced towards that book, right? So uh, I'm thinking language most notably. People oh, in sure. the Mistborn world swear by rust and ruin in the second era. Yeah. Uh, in the first yeah. era, they talk about, uh, and, and in fact, in both eras, they use metals and alloys a lot in their um, just idioms and and daily yeah. language, things like that. People on Rashar swear by storms, and they use metaphors that talk about light and gems and things like that. And so mm-hmm. this is always, this is almost always fun for me to read. There are examples that I think sound silly, um, but yeah. I like the ones in here. And, and specifically, so what I, the, the two that I took the most note of, although there are more than that, are just calling the, the, the fluidization of the oceans, the seethe, yeah. which has this yeah. like violent and aggressive vibe to it. Like when, when you're, when you're talking about seething, you were often talking about like seething with anger, right? Yeah. Uh, or like with strong emotions. And so prescribing this violence to the oceans, this deadliness to the oceans uh, is, is particularly appealing to me. The one that I like a lot more is calling acts of foolishness lunacies on a planet with 12 uh, giant moons. <laughs> oh, I didn't even pick up on wow. that. Wow. Okay. I did not pick up on that. I didn't that. either. That happens so much. And I mean, like, it, it, it's understandable <laughs> that you wouldn't pick up on it because we would we would say the same thing. But to me, it was clear how much more it is being used in this book because of the context of the world than, than in any other book, right? Dang, you're mm-hmm. right. I did read it multiple times. Oh, I like that. I want to go back to the sea thing, though. Just yes. like, or like calling people lunatics, right? The same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, with the sea, like it, like you said, it's a good way for him to show the danger of it um, in a subtle way instead of just outright telling you. Because he tells you, right? He tells you these spores are dangerous. But then throughout the majority of the story, we're not shown the danger on an everyday level where like there's one point like this. I I remember the first time I read this book, I was constantly thinking, how is their sweat not triggering this all the time? Like if you exert yourself and these spores are in the air, like you're going to be, you know, setting off ethers everywhere. Um, And so I had to, I I had to kind of suspend my disbelief. And well, do you... and then there's one moment, you know, where she gets the the zephyr spore under her mask and it and it sets off her, on her sweat. And I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad we we got it, an example of it. But at the same time, it, it as you read further into the book, you lose that sense of imminent danger. And and, and the only time that the spores get set off are in dramatic moments. Cannonballs are being set off, you know, whatever. Uh, but having in the background, a word like seethe, where when we're talking about describing the oceans in a 
removed perspective, they're beautiful. It's like that moment with Crow earlier, the description of her, that vivid, beautiful description against the railing, and, or, or when she's, uh, when Tress is at the wheel, and, and there's this feeling of freedom and riding the waves and, and adventure and excitement and, and beauty. But then you have to go back to the sieve, which is an inherently dangerous word. And it's like, yeah, there, there is beauty here. There absolutely is. But you need that constant reminder. That it is waiting to kill you. Yeah. Its intent is to kill you. Well, and if you, well, you could, you kind of. Careful you, with the word intent. I was going to say, you, okay. can't, you can't say that. You can't say that. You when can, you, you can't describe intent, something you as can say connection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're giving it inherent humanity as uh, like yeah. it, mm -hmm. it wants your yeah. water. Tress or Hoyd through Tress is personifying. Yes. Thank you. A natural phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And therefore you can think more about like it's waiting. Oh, totally. And, and yeah. there's a moment beyond these parts where Hoyd does this again, very directly and very explicitly with a storm which is yeah yeah a beautiful scene yeah, we'll get that it's a beautiful yeah scene. um and so this just popped into my head like there's a a clinical phobia called philosophobia um which one's that like the fear of deep water oh, yeah. the fear of seas and Phalas oceans. what's the Phal I, I think it's greek I don't, I don't remember what the actual root is there, but I'm pretty sure it's Greek. Um, but like, I would love, I'd love to like see the reaction of somebody with philosophobia reading this book. <laughs> I am very curious about whether and how that would trigger. Because it's not deep water, right? No, it's, it's not, but, but, it's... but there's still that, like that, impersonal sense of imminence yeah. you know like, yeah but phobias are weird like they they can trigger or not they're off rational of, yeah. off of strange yeah i'm not getting a definition for that um i do i do want to help you <clears throat> with that suspension of disbelief that you had to suspend yeah uh with the sweat thing salt kills the spores Yes. And so it's not, yes, there's salt and water. And so it gets ah, tricky that's there. That's true. And, and, and Sweat is salty. It's not a foolproof way of like avoiding philosophy. Um, avoiding like activating, activating spores. But I think it will occasionally kill a spore before it can sprout an aether. And so honestly, I did put myself. Yeah, I through, like that. I did put myself in this position. I don't really sweat. I get red. I don't have droplets. Oh yeah, you're one of those people. I don't have yeah. droplets you just down. Get hot. I just get hot. Yeah. So I kind of assumed that she was like me and like my family, where like she's not dripping. I've seen people drip, oh, but yeah. I I do not. I have never dripped. Yeah. Like I just have to find water and put it on me in place of sweat. Right. But not everybody is like that. Yeah. True. Some, some, but some I, I, that is a really good point that uh, sweat is salty. Uh, that that's really interesting. Cause like I, from the first time I read this book, 
uh, I I forgot that salt was even a thing. Even though like there's like one mention of her wishing she had like a salted mask or something. But her island is salt. Uh, but but like throughout the majority of the story, so much more focus is put on silver rather than salt. Yeah. Um, there's like one mention of you know they don't mind that their food and water is salty. It's mostly in part one. Right. And she's drinking yeah. Yeah. salty teas and things like that. Yes. But after that, yeah. it's mostly silver because the ships are lined with silver and so on. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure they could do salt, but then you have to constantly. And a big deal is made of how when she takes weaves, quarters, his floor is not lined with silver. Yeah. And she's like, I'm in a death trap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that was a fun moment. Just. Yeah, it was. Because um, I, as a reader, did not pick up on it. And I don't think Brandon intended for like people to pick up on it immediately when he was because like if he describes the room in a way where it's like oh and it was missing the linings of silver around then we would pick up on it immediately and then like Tress's revelation wouldn't hit as strong but because Brandon chose to omit that because we are kind of seeing this through Tress's perspective who doesn't immediately yeah. notice the lack of silver when she does it it by that point, there had been enough emphasis on why silver is crucial on the ship that it was immediately obvious that the lack of silver is going to be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, good good style points. I'm glad you brought those up because the seethe was one that like I, I didn't consciously think about, but but it was definitely there. Like it helped me. Um, and and the, the reason I picked up on it, I didn't pick up on it immediately, but in preparation for this episode, I was thinking, I was trying to remember what they called these things, and I, I had forgotten that they called it the seed. I thought that the oceans mm-hmm. were just oceans, and then when they stopped, they would call it something. And I was thinking, do they call it the stilling? No, that's, no, I'm I'm getting Wheel of Time vibes here. <laughs> and And in reading... I, I remember that it was the other way. They have a term for when the oceans are active and that makes it so when the oceans when the oceans stop being active, you are still framing that inactivity through the terminology of the activity, through the seed. Yeah. And that makes yes. the term prominent, like regardless of which phase you were talking about. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Um, yeah, so moving back to characters, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tread carefully because there's one character in particular I really want to talk about, but that's like Cosmere stuff. Really two characters, Hoyd and Ulan, you know, but, but Crow, I think Crow is a great, a great stepping off point here. I love how Brandon sets things up. There's an expectation. Again, we're leaning into tropes and Brandon playing with them, twisting them, or subverting them. Uh, Very often in stories, we'll get a main character who joins a crew or a party or whatever, not under their own volition, and the leader is a bad guy, an antagonist. And over the course of the story, this leader becomes an ally. The character and, and we feel like 
maybe at multiple points in this part, we feel like maybe Tress is going to break through that barrier and turn Crow into an ally. And every time it gets turned back around and it's like, wait a second. No, Crow is not an ally here. Like you, when she comes to the, the realization, when Tress comes to the realization that Crow wants to go into the Crimson Sea, you're like, okay, this is an avenue for advancement for our main character. She's going to make an ally of the captain and then we're going to go there. We're going to, and, and we're like, okay, we're going to save Crow with the dragon thing. And then Crow's going to say, all right, you helped me. I'll help you. Let's go on to the midnight sea. And then part four ends with actually, no, she's planning on selling you. Yeah. And it, <laughs> and it starts from the very beginning, right? It starts literally from the moment Tress touches the Crow song, right? Because yeah. This is setting up for the kind of story where, Tress overcomes all odds. She walks across the spore ocean and she like clings onto the ship and she proves that she is like, in reality, she's stubborn, but in story terms, she perseveres, right? And then they get her onto the ship and then she immediately like goes to work. And so it has all of these beats of she is going to prove herself to the captain. And then right. 10 and, chapters and later, even... the captain kicks her in the and even in there, in between those two things where she hangs on the ship and she goes to work on the on the decks, the reason she goes to work on the decks is she gets pulled up and Crow's immediately like, all right, toss her overboard. She said, I, I told you you could pull her up. I didn't say she could stay aboard. And so each time we're being primed for these increasingly bigger like hurdles of, all right, she's going to earn this respect, earn this ally. And then it's kicked out from underneath her. Every time. Well, I think that's her seeing like the optimistic side and wanting to believe the best in Crow and also wanting to help her because there's got to be some reason that she's put herself in oh, this yeah. predicament. So is that because she suffered some hardship? Therefore, can I help you with that hardship? And yeah, from Tress's perspective, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's such a you thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking from the author's perspective where he's playing deliberately with a storytelling trope that he knows his readers will expect something to happen. And then it gets, and then he builds up and they're like, okay, now it's going to happen. And he pulls it away again. You know, And I feel like that happens but, multiple times throughout the book, not just with Crow, although off the top of my head, I can't think of any other examples. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to read when, when we go into the second half of this book, I'm going to have to pay attention to this uh, subversion. Yeah, yeah, I think we get a lot more in the second half. There's one in particular that I'm thinking, but it involves Crow again. So, like, I can't really... <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, other characters, though? Or do we have more about Crow that we want to talk about? I think that's more magic and... Yeah. Cosmere and... Yeah, the, there's... Even in, in the first half of this book, there's so much Cosmere to, that we're going to have to get to in, in 15 or 20 minutes here. Um, <laughs> okay, so I guess Charlie's the reason she's doing all of this. Yeah, I guess we should talk about Charlie. Yeah. She is, I mean, that's her motivation. So is, is he motivating enough? Oh, yeah, I think it's totally valid. Um, this is the sort of thing that you expect from a fairy tale, which is the kind of story this is. Um, 
and fortress herself as the character she's built out to be, it very much makes sense for her to to do these sorts of things. Um, I don't think she's acting out of character at all. Yeah. No, about him. But well, right, but that he is worth that to her. Um Do you feel that though? Because they don't have I mean their interactions are Yeah, we got very what short. two scenes yeah, with so them. I think But yeah, the mm. You wanna talk about another character? No, like I, I wanna talk about Charlie still. I do think he manages to make those opening scenes convincing enough. Um, because we're leaning into the fairy tale, right? There's an expectation that that's present in a fairy tale that isn't in an epic fantasy novel. When you, you're walking in feeling like I need to be proven. Like my, my feelings need to be satisfied about these characters. When you're walking into an epic fantasy novel with a 400,000 word, you know, page count. And and in a fairy tale, you expect something different where it's like, I'm told, boom, 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 that's our establishment. Okay, now we're going to take that as gospel and the story progresses from there. And I think he does a good job of finding a balance between those two things because that's what this book is. It's a balance between, you know, uh, it's not a Stormlight Archive 400,000 word book. It's not even a Mistborn 200,000 word book. This is a... I don't remember what the final word count, 110,000 like size. That. Yeah. It's, it's short. It's fast. Um, but it's, that's also a lot more words than you normally get in a fairy tale, you know? And so he spends a little more time than normal for a fairy tale. We get a couple of chapters with him and then we get one poignant scene and then a scene after that, you know, the departure. And then you get a scene after that of her, maintaining that tenuous connection through the cups being delivered back to her and the letters and the, yeah. and so I think he does enough work to make it stick without going overboard for a fairy tale and without being completely underwhelming for an epic fantasy novel. But at the same time, if you take too much time to read this then you've forgotten why, why she's still pursuing this. You know, because you're distracted with well, that's everything on the reader, else. Then. True. That's a true. reader problem. If you take too long to read a short book, that's that's a you problem. Or you get consumed with <laughs> now Hoyd's Hoyd's predicament, or who what Ulam's doing, or like who is Crow? Why is she? No, well, that's just adding complexity to the story. I don't think that takes away from the foundation that he established. True, but it distracts you. I think. One of the problems that I have with this first half of the book uh, is that a lot of the plot, so so ostensibly the plot is entirely about, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go save Charlie, right? It's all about, yep. hey, I am in the Emerald Sea, I'm in the Verdant Sea right now. I need to make my way through the Crimson into the Midnight, right? And so a lot of the plot is about all of that, right? It is about, you know, securing allies on the ship, getting Kroll to go to the Crimson. Uh-huh. The way it is framed feels less about Charlie and more about, I need to get to the Midnight. 
but that's sure. that all of that is subordinate to rescuing Charlie. It is. It doesn't feel as but much. it doesn't feel like I, right. I think... And I mean obviously oh, okay. like we well, disagree with is... how it feels and this yeah. is like yeah. uh, entertainment and media are subjective and so on, but like yes. this is yes. the vibe I got from the story. I yeah, I'm with you. Oh well, I'll I'll be curious to hear, you know, uh listeners, if you you know, if you had problems with this element of the story, let me know. I, I want to, like, I want to hear it. Like, I think this book works really, really well. Um, like I said at the top of the show, this is my favorite of the four secret projects. Uh, and and the motivations of the characters are a big part of that. Um, so if if I'm wrong, tell me. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, that's also my favorite, but apparently for very different reasons. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Interesting. That that feels like a part two discussion. I'm excited. Um, yeah. I mean, not necessarily, right? Um, okay. This has nothing to do with character, but like the the way I I describe this entire book every time is this just feels like a nice, like warm blanket of a book. You just sit oh, down yeah. and you read, and it's like, yeah, you are getting invested in the characters and the plot and all of that, but it's it doesn't put you on edge in any way it it is just pleasant to read all throughout yes you are not wrong and and yes there is <laughs> aethers and there's a dragon and there's a whole lot of other things that the more i don't want to say intellectual but like the more cosmere connecty side of yeah side of things of me appreciates a lot and loves a lot but they are. I don't. I don't think they're the main reason I love this book as much as I do. It's just that it's it's enjoyable and it's pleasant to read. Yeah, you're totally right. Like this wasn't the first, um, you know, the first of the secret projects that I read. Uh, so for for some transparency here. Oh yeah, tell uh, the story. Oh, the story's so good. Okay, so. <laughs> So the secret projects, you know, all three of us are beta readers. Um, we were told in advance, there was an opt-in thing of like, who among the beta readers is interested in doing another beta read? I think we were told a, like something along the lines of a 100,000 word Cosmere book. I don't even know and we were, I, I think we may have been told Cosmere we were. That's important for okay. me because I got the non-Cosmere book and I was very confused. <laughs> but we definitely knew there was a singular, yeah, singular. book coming yeah. down the line. And and the emails went out and I, I happened to live with another beta reader and she got a different book. She got Tress yes. of the Emerald Sea. I did, yes. And Evgeny, you also I got, got Tress. Yeah. I got Seeker Project number two, which is not Cosmere, and I was baffled. I was like, is there, like, I'm reading the first page, and I'm like, is this some, like, random thing that they put at the beginning of every book to, like, in case somebody shared the document, it would be different for each time? And I keep reading, I'm like, no, this isn't, this is just the book. Like, <laughs> and I'm I'm sitting across the room like making different comments because I and, assume he's reading well, well, what no, I like, am. Because I told Lauren we were we were in the middle of a Wheel of Time watch party, and and I was like, oh, the emails here, like, oh. and 
and I told her, I was like, look for, I, I think I told her one of the words from the title. I was like, look for this, search your email for that. And she's like, I don't see that. I was like, well, just look for an email from Peter. And she finds in her spam folder, a totally different book title. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> and, and yeah, then I, you know, I jumped into the beta chat and, and people are talking about two other book titles. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, you know? <laughs> mean, meanwhile, but, a, a lot of, a lot of us over on the 17th chart were in a, in a, in a group chat like experiencing very much the same thing and going, Hey, I got, I got this. And then people were going, wait, but I got, I got a different, did, did Peter send us the wrong file? <laughs> there there was, was a period was of maybe about an hour of just delightful confusion. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so insane. Cause it, we were adding one at a time where it was like, Oh, <gasps> And then there's this. Yeah, well, and, and and for the longest time in in the like main like Facebook beta reader chat, I was the only person who got the non Cosmere book who had like commented in there, and I was like, "Am I am I going insane? Am I the only one who got this one random friggin' book? Everybody else got the Cosmere books, like, and so like I had my own special sphere of insanity for like two weeks. And then finally some of the other people who got secret project two started commenting and I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> but, but so when uh, Tress was the second one I read, I read my own, I did my beta read. And then because Lauren, you know, like we, I, I had that one immediately. And then after I finished Tress, uh, you know, I was able to read the others, but, but so I went from secret project two, which is a, very different kind of story. And then I read this one. And like you said, Evgeny, this is a comfortable book to read. I enjoyed it. It was, yeah, like there's conflict. There are moments of tension. But even with that, it, it's not like, you know, some of the, it's not like a Matthew Stover book or or a you know, Late, Scott Lynch or, or Robert Jackson Bennett where I'm like, uncomfortably I mean, on even, it even without leaving like brandon's works right yes yeah stormlight, stormlight yeah very intense the climaxes of like all of the mistborn books like yeah ending of shadows of self the way that hits is nothing like anything in this book yeah it, it, this is a fairy tale well also the the narrative voice is comfortable the whole time too. Yeah, that's true. Like you know, this is Hoyd telling the story, so that adds an, an extra layer to it. But also, yeah. the style in which he tells the story is very unconcerned. Ooh, sure. I didn't think about I, that. I yeah. think that. So I knew for me that goes I could hand in hand with the fairy tale nature of it, right? Because yeah. I don't yeah. think you would pick up on the fairy tale esque or the Princess Bride esque nature of the story with like if this were strictly third person limited tress pov or not not pov but like you know tress protagonist yeah i don't think this would hit the same way as it does with hoyd like embellishing and flourishing the story to make it sound yes. like a fairy tale you're absolutely oh, yeah. right if if this were a strictly third person close pov from tress it may have been that, like, at a couple of points, uncomfortable level of tension. Or, or I guess, yes. I really hadn't considered that 
but that makes a lot of sense. Have you read Princess Bride, by the I way? I have not. I own it, but I have not. I haven't. Yeah, I own it too, but I haven't read it. It was one of them. So Lauren and I, every so often, um, I don't know, every like once or twice a year, we'll, we'll just have a night where we're like, you know, it's five o'clock. We're both off work. And we're like, let's each pick a book and we're just going to read the dang book, the entire book tonight. And there was one of them that I had several options and Princess Bride was one of mine, but I made the, oh, are you a Cradle fan? I have read all of Cradle. Oh, well, I read Unsold and I regret it. Uh, uh, I'm <laughs> sure many people have told you that it gets better after that. Yeah, they, they have. Uh, but without without going totally off track, um, Unsold, that, that, that series is not, that's not a Drew McCaffrey series. Um, but, but yeah, Princess Bride was one of my options that night, and I elected for a different book. So I have not read The Princess Bride. Okay, I have. <laughs> yeah, it was um, definitely different from the movie. But of course it is. They always are. Yeah. So do you, having read The Princess Bride and having read Tress, do you think that reading The Princess Bride impacted your experience as a beta reader for Tress? Yeah. Without going into beta details. Yeah, but I wasn't thinking about it consciously. Okay. I think it's just one of those stories and experiences that definitely colors things from then on. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like I just read it. Gotcha. Tress just feels like... I mean, I, I always I always come back to the visual from the Princess Bride movie of the of the child tucked in and, and the grandfather like sitting by the bed yeah. and reading, right? It feels like that. It feels you're yes. in a warm, comfy place and someone is telling you a story. And it's like, and I think a, a huge contributing factor is the fact that Hoyd is, there is a certain Reflecting. tone and voice people use when they tell a story, right? You yes. are you yeah. are changing the way people speak and respond to things. Like you are you are emitting. I mean, obviously, you do this in in most media, but like you are emitting like all of the ums and ahs and things like that. But when you read Tress, characters are the way they talk and the way they respond to situations feels like the way characters in stories talk and respond to situations right they are deliberate they are they are like they make realizations instantly they connect uh, uh pieces of evidence almost immediately when they are meant to like you're not going through the whole process you're taking shortcuts in in a lot of that yes yeah. this is the narrator is giving is distilling everything that's happening in the story and it's giving you just the important bits. And I think there's a moment where, uh, again, we have a, a sort of metatextual commentary uh, when Huck spies on Crow and Laggard. And he comes back out and Tress is like, all right, what did you hear? And he forces her into the narrative. And even, even when he is saying his part of the conversation, there's one moment where Tress is like, they didn't say it just like, and he's like, I'm adding... He's like, I'm telling you a story. I'm relaying the information. You know? And so it's a commentary on the knowledge that things didn't happen exactly this way. 
this is for not only expedience, but for entertainment. I am altering how events occurred to make it a better experience for you as the audience. And story. that's how he's done stories. Hoyd, yeah. Hoyd, in our experience, has done stories like this. And so we already have that expectation once we know he's telling the story yep. that a narrative tension, uh, narrative tension is largely cut, but also that it's going to be all right because you don't generally tell stories to other people if it's awful. Like if it's, if it's not like, you don't want to make them uncomfortable. You're not telling them to be uncomfortable. You're telling them because like, this is a relaxed and entertaining setting. Hmm. Certainly that is I... one kind of story and it becomes clear yeah. early on that this is the kind of story that we're going to be getting here. Like this yeah. is, this yeah. is not, you know, campfire flashlight under the head type right, of thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that's that's supposed to spook you in a setting like at the end of the day you know it's going to be okay. It's not supposed to be like and then they died. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's like let me work you up and ooh, isn't this spooky? Let's all experience the spook together. You know, instead of like yeah, this is not that. This this story does not take place on Threnody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Threnody. Um, well, well, speaking of that, uh, do we have any more character things or should we move into miscellaneous and Cosmere discussion? Characters. Characters? Okay, we you, you want to talk more? We haven't talked about like half the characters. Okay, so on the ship, we've got... Soleil and Fort uh-huh. Ulam. Oh yeah, you you definitely Hoy. want to talk about Fort. Okay, do you want to save Ulam though for Cosme? Yeah, Ulam and Hoyd are. I mean, we've already talked some about Hoyd, uh, but Hoyd definitely. I don't think talk we can talk about, about Ulam without bringing up like Cosmere stuff. Like, there's no, there's yeah, like, like, nothing okay. to yeah. him that is non-Cosmere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Fort, I know you want to talk about. Yeah. So Fort does have the technology, but more importantly, I think to his character, he's deaf. He is. And it is interesting to me that he uses the tablet in this way. And the deaf people that I know obviously have access to this technology through their phone. They could do this every day, all the time. They do not ever. Now, obviously, like also, Fort no longer has complete use of his hands, so he couldn't do something like sign language, but that would require other people to understand his signing too. But, I mean, there are, he could use some of it. You don't need all of your fingers for all of it. You could, and you can mime things. He chooses not to. It's, it's interesting. And they also make a point of talking about um, reading lips. Yeah. And I have experience with lots of friends who read lips. Well, so some context here, you worked for the, uh, disabled students resources center at Colorado state. And I took sign language. Yeah. Like, so you have extensive experience with. And I, yeah. And we went to deaf socials. So 
where the deaf community gets together. We don't have a large deaf community. There are places like Martha's Vineyard where it is everybody. Everybody is deaf. And that's not so much the case here. So you've got a bunch of individuals who are trying to succeed in the modern world. And they don't use, in general, they don't use the modern technology because it's not convenient enough and your hands are more convenient. But reading lips is varying degrees of success. It kind of has seemed to me like the more that you have speech therapy growing up, the easier it is for you to talk back and to read lips because you have practiced with a professional from a young age at how to do this and how to see it. I have seen masters and I have seen okay. amateurs okay. at this. Um, I mean, I, I think it's okay that like, because you have seen, right, Fort ostensibly can be either. Sure, he can. And, and I doubt that he's had either, he's either got the ability to naturally be great and he obviously hasn't had the training. So, but it's like, this is difficult, but it's fun that Brandon involved a character like yeah. this. And I think, uh, so, so two points here. Um, one, there is, so when, when Brandon writes characters that, uh, are disabled in some capacity or have a condition that impacts their normal lives in some way. He often looks for specific examples of specific people that have that condition or disability or situation, right? Uh, because he doesn't want to write just, okay, here is my one characters in all of the books who's going to be deaf and I'm going to because that would make a statement on like, not, like you can't distill yeah, everyone's experience into one character because it, a lot of people have different experiences, right? Yes. And so there's probably a good chance that he found someone or read someone's blog or whatever where they talked about their experiences. And so like that informed Fort. And so it's okay for Fort to have one experience that is not universal because no experience is universal, right? The other thing is people that you know not using technology as much as possible or that not using technology as much as Forth does. Yes. Because it's slower. Because it's slower. That's it, the truth. It's yeah. slower. Forth has magical technology. Yeah. And so in, in that case, there is like an infinite room of improvement. Like we are told he has predictive awakened circuits, yeah. right? So, But it's not perfect. It's, it's not perfect, right? But but there's a lot of room for... It's lost socks instead of lost people. <laughs> I mean, what are people with not socks, right? Yeah. Um, you spend your entire life searching for your second sock instead of... Anyway. Um, yeah, as you do. Uh, but I didn't... I hadn't considered... Like, I did note that he doesn't really sign at all and, yeah yeah and i easily explained that as well yeah 
and, and I mean, the, the book addresses that. It's like, yeah, his his fingers don't work right. But I hadn't considered like partial, just making gestures and things like that, which he also doesn't really do. Like you can, maybe it's painful. Yeah. Well, you you have to you have to assume that he did something like that prior to getting the technology, prior to meeting his space wizard, um, because. And there's also, like, a a brief mention of, like, he made do with the inaccuracy of reading lips before that. But that, that, all that says is, that's how he is receptively communicating, not expressively communicating. And so you have to think that there were, there was some way for him to gesture clumsily, if not, you know. At the very least, your your expression, if you are very big with your expression like so this is something that interpreters are amazing at you if you sign without yep. moving your face at all it's like talking in monotone you need to be extra expressive yeah mm. and you should be if you're trying to communicate like you wouldn't talk and not express so yeah. therefore you shouldn't sign and not express oh, that's, that's super fascinating that's what i've heard as well like you have to go like the extra mile when you were interpreting or when you were signing, right? I mean, and it's the same with when you're signing. So if I'm excitedly signing, like my voice would rise, so do my gestures get more, get bigger yeah. and faster. <laughs> and and they should, because how else am I going to communicate the feeling? Yeah. If I don't like without tone and volume. That's really cool. So like, and same with like, if I'm asking a question, my eyebrow should go up dramatically because how are you going to get that? It's a question. If I don't show you, like I can sign question, but I could also the same way you would understand without me asking, I raise my tone at the end. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you should. <laughs> and and some people don't. Like they, they raise their, their tone at the beginning of the question and then it goes down and that wow. always and it's weird. Like confuses me. It's like I I understand that you're asking a question, but I'm also noticing that you were doing so in a weird way. Yeah. I right. think that's a lot of like checking in with the other person of do you get me? Are you following? Like Instead of asking those questions, it's like pausing and kind of raising your voice to be like, to check. Hmm. But it's gotten more prominent and it can be very annoying. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it's crazy. At the same time, okay, I don't want to take away from his personality because it's fun. Yeah, Ford is fun. And he gets so excited about making deals and then writing back to his family. (laughs) I appreciated, uh, there was one point where he was like, I'm more likely to do this than eat my own cooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oof. Yeah. It, it, like, he, he's, he, I mean, obviously he's a gentle giant type, right? That That's yeah. the idea. But it, he's not just a gentle giant. There is, like, the, the trading is a big thing for him. Um, there is, there's humor to him. There is, 
I mean, I, I guess you can bundle up like deliberation and consideration into the into the gentle giant stuff, but like, yeah, he's fun. He's yeah, joyful. This is one area while, where I'll say like he falls into a Brandon Sanderson trope. Brandon loves his gentle giant characters with an added he dimension. Does, yeah. He's he's got one in every yeah. series. <laughs> yeah, they're so when Lauren, you got Kyan yeah. and Elantris, you got Hammond and Mistborn, you got Rock and Stormlight. You know, <laughs> I will say when he described him and Hoyt as the fun little like it's it's like when they created him, they created him like excessively and went, oh, did we go too far? Yeah, yeah. And I thought about uh, I have a coworker who is that size, and he works in the tiny little room (laughs) that is our lab. And I asked him the other day, like what he bench presses. (laughs) He said 335 was his last max. Like his shoulders are like double the typical humans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's ridiculous. And he could, he could hug me and crack my ribs if he wanted to. I I mean, (laughs) You are also not large. No. But the, the, no. Yes, yes. But I like I just picture him like I like trying to turn sideways through the little doorway, <laughs> like <laughs> and and just like, a man that size on a ship. Yeah. I um when, when I when I was at, at the Dragonsteel convention, I was I was lined up for one of the booths uh to like I don't even think I was buying anything. I was just like looking at, at what they have in display and and I turn around to leave and there is a body in front of me and I turn my head up and I keep turning my head up <laughs> I'm like there was <laughs> maybe my brain is exaggerating at this point but I think the person behind like for context listeners I am not a large man I'm like 5'5 five five. the person behind me was in the like seven foot ballpark. So we know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, that I'm guy? pretty okay, sure. Yeah, I know it's who that you're guy that about. I met. And, and he was right like, behind me. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm 6'4, and I was like, yo, dude. <laughs> like, like looking up at him. <laughs> you can find him in, in any room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we do. He's not going to do well in a cabin either. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason why, like, when I was in high school and I was considering going into the Navy and doing nukes, I was, like, one of the the uh, critical decision points was, I'm not going to fit on a submarine. <laughs> I do not regret deciding against the Navy because I would have spent, like, four years of my life hitting my head on low hanging pipes and doorways on a submarine. You're also not going to have a career as a jockey. Oh yeah. 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 Those, those guys are like five, one and less than a hundred pounds. Yeah. They're, they're like the size of children. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't. Soleil. So she's got the thing. She's trying to find her dad. She's looking for her dad. Um, Interesting that she's the one to lead to the conclusion of Tress being King's Mask. King's Mask. She's she's definitely like the most optimistic of the bunch. Or like she's, delusional. She's kind of like the grasping at straws type of person. And quirky. Yeah. 
and is hilarious. That's one of one of the best examples of Brandon Sanderson's humor working for me. Um, like, like I said, every time she tries to do something and people like grab a gun from her before she can go off and do it. <laughs> like uh, the moments when she says where, where she comments, she's like, wow, they must really want to use my pistol. <laughs> like that goes a little overboard for me where I'm like, you don't, you didn't need to add that Brandon. It's already hilarious enough. Like that... when, when they're like taking her, her yeah. guns from her. It, but, it's, it's hard to believe yeah. that someone will be like that ignorant of. Yeah. Oblivious, of happening. yeah. But it, I, I mean, it, it, it works for me. I'm a simple man. Yeah. 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 I'm not as critical either. Cause I want to like the, uh, the uh, technical term for the kind of reader I am is uh, you can look it up in the dictionary. It's a uh, basic bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the kind of reader. Okay. I am. <laughs> okay. Hold on then Evgeny. Why are you not just reading twilight to us? Uh, because I'm not that basic. <laughs> I'm not talking pumpkin spice basic mark. <laughs> okay, not pumpkin spice. I, I, yeah. I don't I don't do pumpkin spice. Evgeny doesn't wear Uggs. <laughs> One day. Now I kind of want to see Evgeny wear I Uggs. I mean, look, there is people meme on, on 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 mugs. They don't meme on mugs. People meme on 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 Uggs, but like they are simplistic and they're functional. And I can appreciate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm kind of in that vein right now where I just want to slip things on and off and not tie them or zip them. Well, yeah, Lauren Lauren just had hand surgery, so. Huh. No, in general though, I've been that lazy for a yeah, month. Yeah, so I have I have uh, kind of a a a type of shoes or a, a, like specific motto and brand that I use, which are essentially slippers. And I use those year round, like 365 days. Yeah, yeah, it's easy. I like. I don't want to take time. I just want to on off. Yeah, yeah. Inking out loud. Come for the literary criticism. Stay for the hard hitting. Stay for uh, the fashion footwear fashion discussion. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about. I wanna yeah. I wanna touch on Huck a little bit. Oh yes, Huck. Yeah, yeah. of course. Um. Um. So Huck, I. A lot of stories have like talking animals, right? A lot of fairy tales have talking mm-hmm. animals. And I think he fulfills that role very well. As the familiar? Yeah. Or or do you mean as just the like pop up? Well, I don't think a familiar is necessarily the the trope yeah. of games yeah. going. So so for. I'm thinking and and this is I am I am running afoul of English not being my native language because none of the fairy tales I know have names that <laughs> translate like oh <laughs> like we're gonna be talking about the same fairy tales but like I don't know what those fairy tales are called in English because I I are learned called. their names when I was four or whatever but yeah a lot of fairy tales do have just like talking animals right whether they are mentors, whether they are companions, whether they are just like somebody runs into an animal that speaks out in the middle of the forest. And I think Huck fulfills those those roles 
well in that sometimes he's a mentor, sometimes he's an ally, uh, sometimes he is someone in need of help, right? Um, yeah. He, obviously without spoiling the second half of the book, but there is more depth to him than, than he gives on early on, uh, which mm -hmm. is also another thing you see a lot in fairy tales, right? Oftentimes, characters will run into a talking animal and they wouldn't think twice of it because apparently animals just talk in fairy tales sometimes. But then by the end of the story, that animal is revealed to be, you know, something more than just a talking mice or a talking rat or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty common fairy tale trope to have like a human turned into an animal, the princess and the frog or things like that. Or the animal is, you know some kind of wizard or a witch tricking the character into believing something. Oh, like, sure, sure. Sword in the stone. All yeah. of these things. Or, or Warcraft 3. <laughs> um, <laughs> that classic fairy tale from Blizzard yeah, Entertainment. Yeah, by, by the, the <laughs> great wizard of, of old, Blizzard. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's interesting. I mean... On a first read, it is normal amounts of interesting, just like getting a, a read and getting a feel for like the kind of world that Huck portrays that Tress isn't familiar mm -hmm. with, right? Yeah. yeah, I love the the way Brandon uses Huck to give a little bit of a window into the wider world of this planet. Um, when he goes, I was the, on this island and like I was walking yeah. around and there was this dancer that I thought was the best one that I had ever seen. And here are some like world building things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and she forgives a lot of it because she's like, yeah, I haven't been anywhere. And Huck himself is like a, a very expressive character. Uh, he's he's colorful, right? Like when he sneaks into the cabin to overhear the conversation, comes back out and he's like, you're going to yeah. play out this scene yeah. with me. You know, but also he implies things like there are others like me, like he talks about his family. Mm -hmm. And honestly, on first read, I was kind of like, is this is this where Brandon is going to bring in non-human animal characters? I mean, he could. I, that was something. Yeah, I had I had kind of. A, a tough time with on my first read where I was like talking animals are not a thing yeah. in the Cosmere, yeah. but, th but they could be, but then I had to be like, all right, this is a fairy tale though. And this is a new world. And like, so it, there was some cognitive I dissonance. I agree. The, the part of me, yeah. the reader in me that was familiar with the rules of magic in the Cosmere had yeah. a hard time <laughs> believing yeah. in it. And be like, okay. Yeah. Clearly this is something that is happening, right? Like, there is something, some magic, some circumstances that can allow for this thing to happen. I will read the story through and hopefully it will yeah. tell me how this is possible. Because none of the rules I know allow for this. Yes. yes. Right, right. That's what I was thinking too. Like, okay, is there some weird island, some weird spore, some weird something? Yeah, like, I, I know the first time I was reading through, I was thinking of all the different, without without going into the full Cosmere spoilers, because we'll get to that later, but I was thinking of all the different incarnations of more special than normal animals mm -hmm. on other okay. worlds, in other, in other books. 
and trying to like jump through those hoops to say, how can I extrapolate this thing I know is, is fact in the Cosmere? How can I get from there to here? Uh, we do have, I mean, we do have examples like, yes, With, without, without, without spoiling, spoilers, without yeah. spoiling. <laughs> yes, many of the things are invested and take on different shapes, but the shapes that they take on depends on the people there. Oh, you're talking about something different. I'm talking about like animals that are special. But we could have invested things that are animals, shapes or animal I mean, yeah. we, we have we have yeah. AVR. I mean, I mean we guess, do, but right? they're not intelligent. We have invested animals, yeah, yeah, but so they're like, not. All right, we're we're just going to go into cosmic <laughs> spoilers because I can't talk around this. Um, if you haven't read the rest of the Cosmere, normally I say this just as a formality, where like I expect everybody who's listening has read most, if not all. But but with this, like. I'm giving you a warning. I know there are going to be people out there who picked up the secret projects because they heard about Brandon Sanderson and it's this may okay. be your first Sanderson book. So like, this is your warning. Your friends. We're going full spoilers here for uh, obviously not for the second half of this book, but spoilers for everything else. Lauren, you're talking about Spren, right? And Sky Eels. Yeah. Sky Eels. Okay. Okay. So Sky Eels are actual animals, and they but they bonded with Spren. I was thinking yes. Rashadium yeah. is, is where you were getting at. Yeah, that's what I was like. Rashadium and oh, AVR, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're they're normal animals, but they're more special versions of normal animals. Okay. And and with Huck, it's like this is a step yeah. beyond that. Yeah, right. You know, but but still, is that level of intelligence? Yeah, but she's pure investiture. She's not an animal. <laughs> True, but she could be animal shape. She just. Right, but she's pure investiture. She's not an animal. She could be. I mean, you can you can like, you can make a reasonable argument that uh, a cognitive like investiture being can manifest uh, in the physical realm, not as just metal, but also as like an animal. But it's a stretch. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't believe <laughs> that is the case, but I think you can make the argument. Yeah, like I, I have a really hard time like making that intuitive leap. Um, uh, I was going into like awakened stuff, right? Well, yeah, and, and there's a specific moment where in Tress where they're like, we're not, we're talking about familiars. We're not talking about like awakened creatures or Chandra, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like this is, and and I'll be honest, the, <laughs> the first time Huck showed up, I was like, is this Chandra? And then Ulam showed up. And I'm like, is this a Chandra? <laughs> I, <laughs> you know? And then he eats a body. And well, we're told that he eats eats dead bodies. And you're like, ah, okay. So but yeah, like, well, well, no, I knew Ulam was a Chandra right away. I'm saying like, Ulam showing up for sure. A Chandra on the page made me think like, is Huck a Chandra? And they're not, but they're not talking to each other. That doesn't matter. I'm, I'm talking about the I, the phenomenon of an animal that can talk. The only time before this book we've seen that happening is Tensoon. Yeah. Yes. As the wolfhound. So I'm like, that was where, like, when, when I see a talking rat, I'm like, is this a chondra? And then Ulam, a for sure chondra, shows up. I'm like, well, there are clearly chondra on this planet in this story. Huck could be a chondra. But then they don't talk to each other. What because does that have to do with anything? the Chandra all know each other? They would. 
uh, that doesn't that, that, that means it. nothing for I would no. expect. especially this far into the Cosmere where like factions have happened they can also assume different shapes yeah and and like and on top of that the fact that like we already know Ulam and Hoid are ostensibly friendly and Ulam is not helping (laughs) actively not helping because he's having too much fun just laughing yeah and so so yeah that like Ulam and Huck not Communicating, that means nothing to me. Okay, okay. So I, I realize now that we have had Chandra interact and not know each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. deceive each other. Okay, yeah. so so that's definitely possible. I just would have hoped that if they were both Chandra, yeah. that they would be. Uh, yeah. I, I think but... by that point in the story, I had... Like, I very quickly gave up on trying to figure out what the hell's going on with Hug. And I'm like, this is... It's some fairy tale stuff that hopefully will get explained, but I will not think about it at all. Yes. Yeah. Yes. At that point, you've and got like, too maybe, much else. Maybe there's a world out there in the Cosmere where animals are like, maybe you can like uplift them essentially and grant them intelligence. Right. And, and there's like a little bit of an implication of that with the like jellyfish Doug thing that communicates. Okay. <laughs> What? <laughs> I hope everybody just heard the face palm <laughs> through my sigh. An example of Brandon Sanderson's humor not working for Drew McCaffrey. The sentient jellyfish things, oh, one of which is oh, named the Doug, ones that communicate with farts. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know you can't hear the gestures that I just made. You just got to make them faster. Rest assured I made them. You got to move your hands so fast they Uh. make a noise. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I I have grown to accept that there will be just like random silly stuff that Brandon puts in the books. Incredibly juvenile. That is the price you pay for reading Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> it's okay. I, I'm going to admit here though, that I, I laughed all the time at Hoyd's sentences. Some of Hoyd's sentences were funny where it's, it's just pure ridiculousness. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I once ate a whole watermelon. <laughs> I'm going to go suck my toes. <laughs> well, like the watermelon thing. He's like, I once, ate a whole watermelon and it gave me diarrhea. I'm like, I don't need bathroom humor. Ah, uh, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't see. I, I cut that part out. <laughs> I think you in my, did cut that part out <laughs> because I don't care about that part. It's uh, like the more interesting ones are just like, <laughs> okay, Hoy, don't eat, eat mm. the plate this time. Like, <laughs> okay, though we're in Cosmere discussion. I want to talk Cosmere right. now because I've been Where? patient. Where first? I'm starting with one specific thing because I especially want to hear from Evgeny oh, yeah. on this. The legendary Boned Aethers. Mythic or Thirteenth Aether. This Woo! is this is fame. I think it has to well. I was gonna say I think it has to be. I think <sighs> it is a clue in that direction. I 
don't necessarily know whether bone spores, bone aethers, ex- like we might be looking at like the knowledge of a real thing, which is fain life kind of being passed down generations and eventually the, this lore makes its way to this world and they interpret that as as, as an ether. ether. Yeah, or as a different kind of yes, spore. that is exactly what I think it is. But I am, I am like yeah. 80, 90% sure this is referring to Fane Life. Yeah, it, yeah. It's which, by the way, as Brandon, of as of Brandon opened that door, as of as okay, of okay, the on, recording of of this, I was gonna say stream as of the recording of this episode, we know the dragons are fain. Yes, we do, which is super. super and there's weird. a dragon like next neighborhood over. Yeah. So yeah, maybe that contributes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I have another spore thing. Okay. Yes. <sighs> okay. All right. So, all spores are activated by water, yes? As far as, far as we know. As far as we know. One of those spores is water. What? No. Produces water. No, produces air. There's blue. Isn't there a blue one that produces water? That That's they... Zephyr. Yeah. Produces air. I thought there was another no. one that produces water. No. They use Zephyr, the, the Sapphire Sea, Zephyr. That's what they use yeah. to fire the cannons. Okay, but the... This is what you were asking me about earlier? The sea that... Um, I think it's Anne and Fort are from? I think they're from the Zephyr. Yeah. No, none, of, none of them are liquid, Lauren. I thought they said there was a liquid one. And I didn't notice it the first time around. I no. I, I can bet money against that. Yeah, I think you misread something. Okay, good. Good, because that would be a huge problem. <laughs> yes. yes, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Hopefully I'm wrong, but if it were a water spore activated by water... There are things about water that were problematic in the Cosmere before this book. And I'm not going to say they're problematic anymore, but they have added a very weird layer to our understanding of investiture. Um. And, or, or, or is it investiture? I mean, I, I dearly hope that we get some form of word of Brandon, whether it is book or just answer about yeah. how to talk about Aethers. I tried to ask Karen about this at JordanCon. And she she knows something and she was not forthcoming okay. about it. Yeah. Um, okay, that's positive. Because it is, it is not clear whether... The Aethers have their own kind of pool of investiture or pools of investiture that they draw from in the same way that the Shards and or Adonalsium do, or whether they have like a different source of power that is not investiture that is like entirely different from what the Shards do. Now, from 
having been in the Cosmere for over a decade, I feel like introducing another source of power is going to make things more complicated than is going to be worth it. I think we're just going to be looking at another chunk of investiture that is like Aether specific. Like think of the Aethers as like another set of shards. They're not that. Right. But for the purposes of accessing power within the universe, I think that works. It, it does, hopefully. Um, but I also think from, a, like, from an author's perspective, we are presumably around the halfway point of the Cosmere. Maybe yeah, some, somewhere in that like 45 to 55% sure. range. Yeah. I mean, we, we've gone through two Mistborn. If there is a time to introduce this, it's now. Yeah, you're true. And, and <laughs> like, that would be the most friggin' Brandon thing ever. And the idea of it excites me, but at the same time, I'm like, is that too much? Yeah. So I don't know if I want it to be one or the other. I'm just excited to see what it ends up being. I definitely have a preference, but I agree that I'm excited to see where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> I do I do want to take yeah. a complete 180 on what we've been talking about. And okay. this is my shardcast background coming through. Mm-hmm. It may be possible that some of your listeners don't know what Fain Life is. Which I was I was thinking about mm. just a moment ago. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, for sure. First of all, you're not meant to. There's no Fane in published Cosmere works that you can uh, that you I can think identify. Life has been mentioned one that you time. can identify. Yeah, yeah. It, like there's a, a reference to Fane Life in Arcanum Unbounded in one of the essays, yeah, and yeah, that's it. Uh, but you yeah. don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, but it all dates back to the kind of original Cosmere world, which is an oversimplification of what's happening. But like Yolen was where a lot of things went down. Yolen was where the shattering happened. Yolen was where the original vessels of the shards were all from, and things like that. Yeah, it's Hoyt's home world. world. And uh, another reason Yolen is notable is that there were three sapient species that lived on that world. Humans were obviously one of them. Dragons were another. And then we have uh, a set of beings... Well, we have the Shodel, which by this point you have probably heard about from the Lost Metal. And the Lost Metal is about as much as we know about the Shodel, but they are a type of life that is different from kind of the carbon-based organic life that we are familiar with, that humans and trees and plants and like cows and chickens come from. They're like, feigned life is like that, but but different in many ways. And the Shodel fit kind of the same role in that set of life as humans do in ours. And and there the important distinction here is that Fane life is invasive. Fane life takes over carbon-based life. Um, another place where you may have seen that is if you have read The Traveler, which was 
read yes. at JordanCon several years ago, and it was published in the anthology corresponding to that year. Yeah. Um, Hoy, like it's it's like a three page. It's not even a short story, right? Um, but it's a, a, a few pages of Hoyd leaving Scadrio post-Era 1 and meeting up with Frost, who is one of the few confirmed dragons that we have. And they are in a world that is like covered by this unnatural white form of life, which is Fane. And they're they're having a brief conversation, which is interesting for separate reasons, but like the conversation is taking place on Yolen, surrounded by Fane life. And so it's yeah. interesting that bone spores, it, it, there's other unpublished things that we don't want to talk about because it's too much. Uh, but it's interesting that bone spores may be... We're already two hours in. <laughs> uh, Maybe a connection to that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's once you know about fame life as a concept and what the signifiers are for it, when you see like like bone spores and an argument over whether it's white or black, that is a neon signpost for somebody who has that knowledge to be like, oh, that is this what I think it is? It's Brandon, you know, being subtle about it, but he's as he's entering into a new phase of the Cosmere, he's still seeding in little Easter eggs like this, that even the casually well-read Cosmere reader may not know about. And, and the really, really hardcore Cosmere reader will. And there is another thing that I think we need to bring up here. And it is the possible connection to White Sand. We are yes. now in a place where we have seen two instances, although both instances were Aether-related, where water interacts with, in the case of Tress, spores, uh, in the case of the Lost Metal, a person, and results in creating like some visible, measurable effect in the world, right? We see Twin Soul, in the Lost Metal, yeah. create Rosite, which is directly named in this book, and it is what comes out of the spores of the of the Rose Sea. So that's multiple confirmations. Is this is definitely an Aether. Um, yes. And we have in this book, obviously, water interacting with spores just creates the substance of the Aether, which I still don't know the proper language to talk about these things, by the way. Like, um, but then we have... Oolong calls it investiture, but... Yeah, but, like, is the Aether, like, the thing that lives on the moon, or, like, the prime Aether that lives somewhere, or is it the substance? And that, I think, is a discussion that is, like, very tangential to what we're talking about here. Um, But on White Sand, on Taldane, we have Lycan that live on the sand of Dayside and water causes them to release investiture that certain people can manipulate. And and so some people have rightfully asked, hey, what is going on here? Yeah. Um, 
and we know he that Brandon wanted to remove slack and he did. Omnibus and he gets did. gone. Um, but even without slatrification, which is the creation of water, we still have sand mastery being fueled by water in the same way that we see, for example, midnight ethers, the midnight essence being oh, fueled through the Luhel bot. Yeah. Yeah. We got like, and we can save some of this conversation for the end of the book. Um, we can save it for next episode. But but there is um, there is a for sure connection. Like this is there's some things in the Cosmere that's like, oh, that's a coincidence. This is not a coincidence. Something of this yeah, level yeah. cannot be a coincidence. I agree. Um, Shash being one of the letters in the Nalthian alphabet, and Shash being a glyph in Stormlight. That's whatever. Yeah, divergent language, whatever. Yeah, but but like magical mechanics Brandon is very deliberate with this kind of stuff um yeah like I honestly at the point we're at in the Cosmere there are a few things that I would give higher precedence to just getting a straight answer from Brandon on than what is the deal with with water versus ethers versus investiture like If, if it is something different, is Sand Mastery actually a divergent in magical art on Taldane versus uh, what's going on on uh, Darkseid? Um, I don't think I'm allowed to say that word well, yet. Darkseid? Um, yeah. Uh, no, there's the name of the... Anyway. Um, that got retconned, right? Uh, in the White Sand yeah. prose... Sky colors Gone. are a thing. Gone. So yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a so new yeah. people from Dark Side now have star marks on them. Okay, I wasn't sure if we were allowed to like. I may have to. Yeah, no, that that, that's fine. So but. in the omnibus, uh, people from Dark Side, some people from Dark Side have star marks on them. Some animals also have star marks, and then do we get yes. that term star marks yeah. in the omnibus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, couldn't I, remember. Can, I can guarantee right. you that. Okay. And um, <laughs> the, the the small star that is over on dark side, like it emits a pulse every seven days and that like charges or recharges people's star marks. In addition yes. to that, yeah. there are, uh, what's the what's the big bad on, on dark side? Uh, Skaten, yeah. yeah. I think so this is he has one? people yeah. who are known as the star carved. That name is not is in, in the omnibus. Yep. What? That it was different in the gamma. It was star something else. And in the published version, oh, they okay. changed it to star card. Yep. Okay. Uh, okay. And so that's canon. And, and right. we know that they have canonically, they have like an ability that is similar to like, they, like they have armor essentially, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we know like a couple of other things about them, but not much. So these yeah. are these okay. are the canonical okay, terms we know about. Okay, I, w I just wanted to make sure that I'm not like breaking me, NDA. I, I, I live <laughs> in multiple layers of NDA. <laughs> but yeah, so like there's there's just some ridiculous stuff going on investiture level 
um, that this book just complicates the hell out of. Okay, okay. So I have an I have an maybe easy solution. What if? Thank God. What if there's something special about the water or the liquids in in these people? Like, what if their their water is I don't know invested in some way? I can't see it. I think the fact that we see water having an effect on, like, in, in Lost Metal, worlds. in White Sand, and in, in Lumar means that it's not, like, it's yeah. water itself that is special, or, like, water's interaction with, like, Aether-related things that is special. Um, yeah. it, it, obviously, White Sand, we don't know that it's Aether, but, like, it interacts with things in the same way that Aether things do. Uh, that makes me think that it's not, it's not that three planets have special water, it is that water is special, or its interaction with Aether things is special, and then it's Aethers that... I mean, you're, you're right, there are multiple water things, but I wonder if that's going to complicate it here too much and his easy solution could be well they're they're biologically different or no i something I, their, I can't their see water that is different i don't know because the water that twin soul is using in the lost metal is scadrian water and there's nothing special with water going on on scadrial other than that other than this one specific use case where he has an ether bond but we don't but it's a different what is different? We don't know exactly his ether. No, but the point is, whatever he's doing is not native to Scadrial, but he's using Scadrian water. If there was something special about the water on Scadrial, there would be something more going on with the magic Dang there. I was water. trying to give Brandon an easy no. out. I no, I think he has easy, quote-unquote, easy outs. It's just not that. I mean, the, the easy out is Aethers use water as fuel. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is something that Hoyt talks about and maybe he talks about the second part but this is not a spoiler it's that aethers consume water to like manifest that like it's it's their source of fuel yeah well it, it's talked it's touched on lightly with the loot hell bond that that's exactly where, what i'm talking about yeah 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 it's it's in the first half here where uh it it's compared to the nehel bond on roshar where it, it trades like cognizance yep. for manifestation in the physical realm. And this trades like a physical substance in, in this case, yep. water for physical uh, or, or like, um, like a cognitive. Uh, yeah. Like it, and, and it, and it creates that like cognitive bond between the two. So that you like get put into like midnight tress becomes a thing, you know? Um, and so, and, and what this makes me think about is, Maybe the Luhel bond, like maybe ethers are its like are their own thing, and they use a an even more bedrock concept, and that is the Luhel bond. And Sand Mastery also uses the Luhel bond between the uh, lichen on the sand and yeah the Sand Master. Hmm. I was very annoyed when Brandon introduced Luhel Bond because now I'm like, what other kinds of bonds are there, man? Like, yeah, when when you have like a single type of bond with a single name, it's like, okay, that's that's fine. It's just a thing in the world, right? The moment you introduce the yeah. second one, it begs the question, how many are there? Yeah, yeah, and and especially when there's a clear like 
etymological root shared. Yep. yep. Like, yep. Ugh. Brandon, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> I, I, I would not be surprised if there are more types of bonds. 16, perhaps? Not necessarily 16, but I would not be surprised at I, three. Uh, so my, my first impression was like, they're going to be 16. And then I was like, what if there are four? Don't shards. Don't shards. Mm. So my thought was, so I was going into like a realms direction, right? So when you, mm. when you form a, a Nahel bond, it's a bond between a physical being and a cognitive being. And the physical gains, you know, control over it. it it's difficult to say what surge binders yeah. gain control over, but like, because they gain magic, right? But they yeah. gain power over something. And then the cognitive being gains sapience, right? And then in the Luhel bond, it's a, it's a bond between, as far as we know, two physical beings. As far as we know, there are, you know, aether creatures on the moon that barf spores. Yeah, the, the prime ethers. I, I don't think that's the prime ethers. But I think there are... Well, okay. In, as told to us in this book, the prime ethers. <sighs> Let's... So this is going to be something that I was going to bring up next. Um, I, I will... Going back to... Because very clearly, there, there's one sentence, there's one moment uh, where they... Um, ether. They... Uh, whatever... Twin Soul is doing in the Lost Metal cannot be the same thing no. as what's no. the same. No. I think Aether um, Bond are similar to Spore Eaters, but not the same thing. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a comment I think Hoyd makes in his own or Ulam makes, where he's like uh, this is similar to, but not the same as people who directly bond yep. Ethers. Yep. Uh, and that's what we see with Twin Soul and Silagena in uh, the Lost Metal. But at the same time, there's a moment, and I can't remember what the name is. It begins with a T and it's killing me. Um, there's one moment where somebody describes the moon, the black moon over the Midnight Sea, as somebody's moon. It's a name. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Thanasmia. It's like Thanasmia. It's like a or something it's like Thanasmia. that. Thanasmia. Thanasmia, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and and I was like, Dang it. that sounds like the name of a prime ether entity. That could be it. Yep. And but this may be a case of a remnant from their mythology, and the prime ethers have been kicked out. <sighs> yeah, I I, don't, I <laughs> don't have a good answer about the Nazmia. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know early like because this shows up in like part one. Early yes. in the yes. book, when I was reading that, I thought, oh, maybe that's the name of the sorceress. But that's not the case. Yeah, it yeah, goes yeah. <laughs> beyond that. Oh, sorry. That's something I'll bring up next episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I found it. Do you want me to read the quote? Yeah, he sailed the midnight sea beneath the Nazmia's moon. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Nazmia. Okay. The sorceress took him. Yeah. So he was beneath the Nazmia's moon when the sorceress took him. Well, yeah, but the sorceress so is in the Midnight Sea. Yeah. Yeah, but we didn't. Yeah. I don't know. That's uh, the only mention. It is. Yeah. 
Mm. I mean, the, it would be easier if there were an obvious etymological uh, relationship between Salajana and Thalpanasmi. Yeah, yeah. If, if, but they yeah. feel like very different names. Yeah, if this was like, like a... Salajana like, clearly has Indian, yep. like real world Indian subcontinent yep. roots. Thanasmia feels more Greek than yes, anything it does. to me. Yep, yeah. I agree. Yep. So, and which which fits really, really weirdly with the etymology of like a lot of the names on Lumar, because a lot of the names, at least on the rock, like Diggins Rock, are just like dumb names. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Dwarf and uh, what was the other one? Lem. Lem is one. What's her, what's her, no, what's her mother's name? Uh, it's something like it, It's Glorf. also, oh. yeah, it, it's something dumb like Glorf, yeah. Flick. Flick is a servant. Yes. Flick. Yeah. But Flick gets to leave. <laughs> Although, you know, once we leave the Dickens Rock, we have, you know, more normal names like Fort and Sally and Anne, so. And Doug. Yeah. And Doug. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do this. The dogs are hilarious. Yeah. There's no but, getting But obviously, that. like, none of these names are in the same family as Thanasmia. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Okay, we haven't talked about Hoyd. Is Hoyd in this book? Is Hoyd, is Hoyd in this book? <laughs> huh. All right, so we find out he's got a curse. It's from the sorceress. Yep. And, and it's something he entered into deliberately and with full knowledge because he thought he was going to get something that he needed or wanted. And he's still, like, he's in there, but he gets to watch himself be completely embarrassed. Can we talk about the fact that Hoyt apparently has, like, a Chandra friend at this point? Yes. We can. I don't think that's too notable. I, like... He has a friend. That, that he... I, I don't know. Like, Hoyd... I We haven't seen enough of Hoyd actually being friendly with other Cosmere-aware people. He forms relationships with people who are local and ignorant, but his interactions with Cosmere-level people previously have been, at best, indifferent and oftentimes outright antagonistic. Yeah. And, and at this stage, obviously, the Chandra are Cosmere-aware. Um, and, and he's got a guy who he's like, I'm going to write to him because he's going to come help me out. That does not seem like something somebody would do for Hoyt. <laughs> I think this is a combination of like, a lot of what we get from Hoyd is like ancient history, essentially, right? We get his yeah. letters to like Shardic vessels and other ancient like Frost and Rays and, mm -hmm. and people like that. I, I, so I think this is just an artifact of Brandon is opening more of Hoyd's like character and personality, yeah. right? We're getting more of him. And so he's no longer this mythological figure that we mostly hear about from like his very important in capital letters communications with other very important figures we now get more of like what he is doing out in the Cosmere, right? He is yeah. forming relationships with, with Seized, uh specifically and or Harmony. He is interacting with the Chandra. He's 
shagging Yasna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost said something, but I'm not going to. Uh, uh, we're, we're not going to retread that territory. We already went over it. We are, you and I have already been over that. Lauren and I have already been over that. This podcast has already been over that. There are certainly uh, opinions to be had. Yeah. But, okay, so this is, this is the first time we see someone actually having power over Void. Second time. It's hilarious. Though. Second time. Oh, yeah, second time. Rhythm on. of War epilogue. Rhythm of War epilogue. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, but no, you're, it is right, friggin' right, hilarious right. how Ulov is like, he's like, I'm writing down the best ones. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just here for the ride. Like, So this this goes back to, I think, for me, it, my sense of humor and, and the way Brandon writes humor. Sorry, we're, we're going off Cosmere into style again. Um, When Brandon writes situational humor i find it really funny yes but when he writes like witty dialogue i tend to think it's dumb as hell so um taking taking a stab here you you didn't like like the the sarcasm fiend uh pun in the rhythm of war uh where's the radius no no yeah i didn't think you would And similarly, like, again, pun, and this is also like a writing style thing, when uh, Ulam says touche, and and Tress is like, touche? What? Like, so, first off, that breaks down on a language level, because the point of this is that it's supposed to be a foreign language being translated into English. That foreign language is not French, and, like, it, it, like, Brandon, come on, man. Like, I get that this is him, like, taking liberties in this book, but, like, ah. It is very easy to suspect. Like, that wordplay already bothers me. And <laughs> then and then there's the, like, anachronistic element to it. Um, but, no, and it's same thing with, like, the insults and insluts. Like, uh, that is terrible. That, that is a very specific instance where I don't like it. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, but like, irregardless versus time, irregardless, I, I'm okay with that. Oh. Uh, again, anachronistic because this is supposed to be getting translated from another language into English. Yeah, anyway, but also how it's uh, translating in the language that the, the the audience is speaking. So yeah, uh, that's way too much explanation <laughs> necessary for a bad joke. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like you know, we've already talked about Anne or or this or in in um, the beginning of Oathbringer. Like one of the first things that made me laugh was the like Kaladin having this mental image of Syl sitting on the headboard while he's getting it on. And she's like rooting, yeah, him, you go, rooting him on and coaching him. Like that's hilarious, <laughs> but it's because it's situational. Right, it's... Like Brandon does good situational humor, but I don't think his dialogue based humor is any good. <laughs> okay. It's just too juvenile. Yeah, it is. Also. Yeah, dude, stop it with the fart and poop jokes. I just, Brandon, I am 12. This is okay. Keep going. <laughs> uh, yeah, you should have you should have heard our Lost Metal episode where I went on a rant about his like three page long fart joke. That is another instance where I'm like, you that should not have been longer than a sentence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it shouldn't have existed at all. Well, anyway. uh, <laughs> I, I'm a generous but, Yeah. <laughs> Um, but do we have any other like big Cosmere things we want to talk about before we wrap up and get into the final draft here? 
I want to do a quick oh, yep. search in my PDF. Yep. Got one. All right, Lauren, what do you got? Irioli. Oh, oh yeah. Irioli are here. Or were here. They were, yeah. Yeah. And they all disappeared off yep. their one island Just, boop, one day. 300 years ago. Okay. Yeah. That's not in this part. Okay. But that is fun. It is definitely fun. Um, that, so it, it is, I, I think there's more to this. Because I think it opens up the door for us to talk about timeline stuff. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. At this point in the story, through Words of Brandon, we know that all of the secret projects take place in the future. Yes. So we are we are past, at the very least, Stormlight 5. Yeah. That tells us that at some point after Stormlight 5, the Iriali, either the entire nation or a group of the, like a subset of the nation, or like another offshoot of the Iriali, came here. Spent three hundred, or, or spent some time there, and then three hundred years left. ago. Left. Yeah. yeah. So we are, you know. So that was that was going to be my question: is what land is is Lumar? Right. Yeah. Um, which, like, this 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 one story has has led me to question a lot of like Iriali lore. Yeah. And. I think where we land on this is going to depend on where we land on the question of whether all of the Iriali move together uh, or whether yeah. there are offshoots. Hmm. And I'm going to, I don't want to make this too lost metal, but I have to bring up the lost metal. Lost metal screws it up. Not necessarily. Yes, that timeline gets real tight. So there, there are Iriali in the Lost Metal. Yeah, we know that. However, beyond like we're we're told, hey, there are people with like golden hair, you know, living in like one of the districts of Bilming, right? Clearly, a reference to the Iriali. Clearly, this is not the entire nation of Iri because Lost right. Metal takes place. Well. I guess I can't say clearly, right? But like Lost Metal takes place between Stormlight 5 and 6. So it's possible yeah. that around the time of Stormlight 5, all of Eerie just like up and goes and they they go to like maybe Scadrio, maybe multiple worlds. That's possible. What is also possible, and I think is more likely, is that starting with the first land the Iriali split. And all of them like retain this belief of the one and retain the belief of the seven lands and so on. But to each individual group, the, They're different. the sequence yeah. is, is in a different order, right? And so you can have like 200 people, 200 Iriali on... Scadrio, and they're like, oh, this is our third land or whatever. And I think that's still possible. And, and then you can have, you know, another group of like 3,000 people or whatever living on an island on Lumar going, oh, this is our fifth land or whatever. And then you have, yeah. you know, a nation of 50,000 people on Roshar who are saying this is our fourth land. Yeah. 
mm. to throw an additional wrench into this because we haven't had enough wrenches. <laughs> I don't necessarily believe this, but I could be convinced okay. to believe this. The man of gold and red. No. Oh, jeez. I don't think you can disprove this at this very moment. Oh, I don't. I don't. I don't want it. It is possible. How likely? I will. I will leave to the reader for homework. It is possible that the men of red and gold are ancient irreality from a world that was conquered by autonomy, and they are now. Infused by her power, upgraded by her power, whatever, they now serve her. And the rest of the irreality run away from them. I hate it so much. (laughs) I could see it, though. (laughs) I am am the voice of the people. I am am but a messenger. I actually haven't seen that theory before. That so so fun fact. I was I was chatting with a bunch of seventy chart betas about lost metal. Right, we we had yeah. just finished like all of us had finished the book. Some of us were a little earlier. We were talking about things, and then one person shows up, and it's like, so men of gold and red. These are irreality, right? And all of us oh, who had uh, finished the book before then were like, what? <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> Oof. I need to go back and reread a, a specific scene in the Lost Metal. It is not specific enough. It's not specific enough. They Dang are it. not described well enough for you to say whether they are like humans or machines, or whether their skin is golden in color or whatever. Ah, <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> All right, Brandon. All right, I see you. With your revelations that don't reveal anything. So that's that's my <laughs> that's my mini TED talk on the irreality and All right. All right. Well, I think that's a good spot to leave off for for this episode. Uh we will assuredly pick back up next episode with more ridiculous Cosmere conversations given uh, what is yet to come in the second half of this book. But before we can totally sign off, we have to do the final draft. Uh, Evgeny, what are you drinking over there? So I changed drinks halfway through the episode. Uh, it happens when it's two and a half hours. Well, long. that's short episodes are like that. <laughs> I, I started off with an old fashioned because I thought, nice. uh, Tress felt like an old-fashioned type of gal. I like that. Yeah, yeah, Princess Bride. Yeah, and very and then we took a we took a break, and I didn't feel like making another old-fashioned, and so I am now drinking plum-flavored soju because that's the thing that I had access to, and it's delicious. I I haven't had much soju in my life, but I I do remember enjoying it. It is it is delicious. I believe nice. you. Uh Lauren, what are you drinking? 
Okay, so... I thought I was trying to set you up for earlier. Yeah, yeah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my beer I found in our brewery cooler. I don't know who brought us this, either whether it was the brewery or a patron. Um, but it's from Baton Rouge. Yeah. So let's see. The brewery itself is Rally Cat Brewing. And they're kind of like a baseball themed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a sour ale with passion fruit, papaya, and banana. Oh, I got to smell this. And it's 5.5%. Wow. So very light. Oh, yeah. It's super fruity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I assumed it was going to be a smoothie beer, so I rolled it to, like, <laughs> get the consistency nice. Get all, all that uh, fruit detritus at the bottom. And I tipped it upside down. Yeah. I did all the things, and then it just uh, was not a smoothie. And, and it blew up <laughs> Smooth. Nice. Anyways, this is for Tress. Although it... Tricky metaphor, but fish out of water is what this beer is called. I, Love it. I, I think that phrase <laughs> does, in fact, appear in the book. So, hmm. Yeah. It's good. That's good. Would you, would you well, say the, uh, the color of the beer is the color of Tress's hair? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Actually, yeah. There you go, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going last because Drew's drinking a beer for the first time in uh, almost a year. Bringing on a a fun thematically named beverage for the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, This is a hazy IPA from our mutual friend uh, and almanac beer companies uh our mutual friend is in denver colorado almanac where is almanac is that california okay um but yes this is a hazy ipa dry hopped with centennial and el dorado hops uh i wish i could say this was remarkable it was not it was fine it was it was an ipa what was the date on it uh the date uh 12 no no way Two ten twenty two. Oh, that's why it's not remarkable. Oof da. Wow, there. I almost don't believe that because I feel like a beer ten months maybe, old. Maybe would maybe it's maybe be it's like, like non U.S. notation good. and it's October. Yeah, it maybe ten two twenty two. I don't know, but mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, this beer is called Celestial Schematics. Oh no, to. <laughs> to go back to the, you know, snake pit that Brandon opened up by making these moons the way they are. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I had a couple of options when I was, you know, looking over, over the beer selection at our bottle shop, but I saw this. I was like, this is hilarious. Maybe it's hilarious to me more than most people because I've been, there for some of these conversations where people were like, this doesn't work. Like, <laughs> but, but yeah. So just want to say it's, it's good to be back. I've been drinking a lot of, you know, Gatorades and non-alcoholic beers and tonic waters and things like that. And, and it was finally time for Drew to return to the Inking Out Loud podcast with a, a good old fashioned. I, I would like to recommend to you if you have been drinking tonic water, which by the way, I love just like, a regular tonic water. Yeah. Like, some people cannot stand it. Same. I love it. 
I will oh, I will recommend to you like a high percentage rye bourbon, like a, a wild turkey 101, wild turkey 120, things like that, oh. mixed with tonic water. Oh. I would never have thought about mixing a whiskey with tonic. So the only reason I know this is because I heard somewhere of a cocktail of like mixing, uh, like adding uh, club soda to your whiskey or to your bourbon. And, and mm-hmm. I was like, hey, I can, that, that's easy enough, right? I can try that. And I realized I didn't have any, any club soda, which is just carbonated water, right? But I did yeah. have tonic water at the moment. And I tried it with the wild turkey, and it was delicious. I have tried it with other wow. whiskeys, nowhere near as good. So, like, I what what kind of proportions did you do? Um, I would say like maybe two ounces or maybe three ounces of whiskey, and and just like fill up another, I, like probably one one to two. Okay, whiskey to to tonic water. All right. But we actually have some rye whiskey at home right now. Yeah. That, mm. But does it still glow, Evgeny? Does it still glow? Yeah, have you ever looked at tonic water under a black light? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it glows under a black light. I, today I learned. <laughs> yeah. It's no, 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 no. You ready? It's magic. It protects you. you know. <laughs> it, that, that's it, what actually oh, the water that's is. That's what that protects you from scurvies. Yeah, not scurvy. Um, it protects you from uh, malaria. No scurvy. No tonic water scurvy. Yeah, quinine. No, no. quinine is from malaria. Is it? Uh, scur- tonic water was something they would give to sailors to prevent them from getting scurvy because they're no. not eating enough fruit. I no, know. Tonic, I know. So citrus, like oranges and things like that, were were. It's yeah, yeah, that too. True, it's vitamin C for. What? I mean, for mm, scurvy. They definitely. Mm, no, you're mixing up. Okay, so. Gin and tonic is because the British went to Africa and were experiencing malaria for the first time. They figured out that quinine you had to drink to help. You're right. They added gin to it to make it enjoyable. It it is malaria. Yep. Okay. All right. It prevents the the parasite from going through all of the life stages in your blood. Um, Join us us for... Conversations about yeah. the Cosmere and the Tress of the Emerald Sea. And foot fashion and... Stay for uh, fashion uh, and sailing tips. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so this has been a delight. This has been episode 198 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we're finishing off Tress. Evgeny's going to be back for that one. It's going to be great. It's probably going to be another two to three hour episode because we got a lot more to talk about Cosmic Wise. the short episodes. Oh my. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, uh, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, uh, we're on Coffee. That's ko-fi.com. Uh, but with Patreon especially, you know, like I said, top of the episode, we got a bunch of bonus content. You can get early access to episodes. You can get um, m- lots of you know, we have a full back catalog of short story episodes and fun things. We got a bunch of original fiction written by Rob or myself. So check us out there. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Evgeny. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Kirillov? Sure. Yeah. 
enough? That is no, close enough? It, no, say it right. That is for a speaker of a language that doesn't roll its R's, that is correct enough. Oh, all right, all right. Wait, tell, right. Us, tell us the right way, though. So the way I would genuinely pronounce that if I was if I were like speaking Bulgarian but another Bulgarian I would say Evgeny Kirillov okay <laughs> all right well anyway he's Argent on 17 oh, yeah. Shard you know him from Shardcast he's great he's gonna be back uh and of course Lauren my excellent wife no longer drinking alone <laughs> what does that feel like she gave me a look while she did that <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. It's been fun. Bye. I'm waving because I'm used to